Hello, and welcome to Morbid Medley, your one-stop shop for the bite-sized bazaar. I'm Kimberly LaBerge, and thank you for tuning in today. Today we've got a bunch of really great pieces for you, a fun variety coming up, as well as some better sound levels than last time. If you notice some weird balance between segments in our first episode, I hear you, and I agree, and I also noticed, so thank you for bearing with me and sticking around till this next episode, and we're gonna just keep getting better at this thing. We're gonna do it together. The pieces I have for you today start with Purity of Flame, which is a horror short story by Adrian Duell. Next, I'm going to talk a little bit to you about M. Night Shyamalan's movie Old from 2021 in preparation for his new movie coming out in 2023. After that, we have a poem called Heart of Horrors by Alshad Kara. Following the poem, it's going to be my roundup, so it's going to be all of the things that I've read or watched within the last month that I felt like talking about and that were worth mentioning. Lastly, we're going to listen to a segment from Jeff Walker's podcast, Acephaly, called The Infernal Enigma. This is a really phenomenal podcast, and I'm excited to partner with him for this episode. Adrian Duell is a very talented actor and comedian and writer who I had the lucky opportunity to work with back during COVID when you could work with people who you weren't even in the same location as. So I'm lucky that our paths got to cross, and I'm happy to share his piece with you today. Purity of Flame by Adrian Duell The girl ran upwards into the Temple of Ash. The mighty cliffside dazzled in darkness, reliefs etched into the walls with stones of tourmaline and opal. The pristine sight depicted a plume of smoke rising upwards towards the sky. Her father said the heat from the rising sun absorbed into the stones, turning the relief into a burning pyre. In this way, the devout, too, may endure the scorching agony of Agni the martyr's sacrifice. The girl avoided this blessing by ascending the temple whilst the sun sat atop the mountain. Night shrouded her movements, ensuring no guard would discover the young girl entering the cave of sacrifice. Though many still lurked around the entrance, she was able to sneak into the cave's entrance at the base of the relief. The sheer extravagance of this monument proved to be the most astonishing thing the girl had witnessed in her fifteen years of life. These dark gems still shined, like stars, in the darkness of night. Once her vision adjusted, the girl noticed her own figure in the stones. A hooked nose with a black dimple on the right, a rounded copper face and deep brown eyes. Even in darkness, her long black hair was visibly matted by dirt and mud. Her full lips and bushy eyebrows were the only things differentiating her from the rest of her plebeian caste. Like my mother, the girl thought. She touched her quartz necklace, the last memento of her mother, for comfort. I will find you. The girl stared forward into the endless darkness before her. Legends tell of ancient carvings of demonic idols the ancient Ahura once worshipped. Do not call them demons, her father once told her. We never worshipped demons. She felt the sting of his slap on her cheek. Such fury outweighed any ancient evil that lurked in those caves. Her memory was interrupted, however, by the sound of wired silver armor coming towards her. Clink, clink, clink. Not wishing to receive an arrow from a deva archer in the throat, the girl made her way into the cave. I will find you, mother. Ahura and deva alike would have called her foolish for this. Despite having been purified by Agni's sacrifice a century ago, many feared that dark spirits still possessed this holy temple. As the girl heard the clinking of silver move further away, she was sure the guard felt the same way. She fingered the walls of the cave for some type of torch. Shambling her way through, her foot touched a cylindrical object on the floor. She knelt and padded around the area, landing on some type of stick. The smoothness of the stick filled the girl with some confusion. Ignoring its oddities, she tore off a section of her paridana and wrapped it tight around the old stick. The girl ripped off the quartz necklace and struck it against the wall. Her torch lit a flame, illuminating the black cave. She gazed at the wondrous displays of worship and culture surrounding her. On one side, a carving of the prophet Parnum, slaying his brother Hagnis. On the ceiling, a painting of Rajago the Orak, highest of gods, who sacrificed himself for all of Devistan. His blood, painted on either side of the cave, led her eyes to the other side. A depiction of the ancient Deva soldiers, nobly burning themselves and the Ahura to purify this monument. The girl glanced at her torch, white and skeletal like a bone. The girl gasped, dropping her makeshift torch and stepping back, 
Her bone torch clattered on the ground, still aflame. She panicked, hyperventilating at the idea of touching such an unclean object. Corpses cursed the earth they touched, and, as beings of earth, humans were no exception. Her head spun, her legs became weak. She backed into the depiction of Parnum and Hagnes, sinking into the ground. The girl felt eyes peering at her from the walls of the cave. The bone shaped into her mother's hand, crawling toward her. Breathe, the voice of her father said. Capture air in your lungs and release. She shut her eyes and breathed in, then out. Twice, thrice, four times, as many as possible to cleanse her mind of the potential corruption she may have brought upon herself. Purity of mind, she thought. Such heresy must have a reason, for this is a place of worship, not a tomb. Wait. The girl realized her foolishness. Many sects in Devastan sacrifice goats, pigs, and horses during major celebrations. An unsanitary practice, but not unheard of for the most holy temple in the city of Tagayistan. For the Ahura, nothing tainted one's soul more than the rotting corpse of a human. One must have their body put on top of Dakar to not poison the soil beneath with haunting spirits. But animals, though unclean, did not curse the earth like a human corpse. Animal souls could never possess a human, and especially not haunt a holy site such as this. The girl calmed herself. She opened her eyes and found the bone to be sitting there, still lit aflame. She grasped the skeletal torch with caution and inched deeper into the cave. The cave proved to be deeper and more luxurious than its outward appearance suggested. The walls shimmered with fine gemstones and materials. Gold, silver, turquoise, and emerald. The sheer wealth contained in this place made the girl marvel and wonder. Her family would likely spend this type of money on food or clothing. She keeked her own cloths. A once-red uteria, now brown from years of hard labor. A ripped paridana and tattered belt hung below. Not a bad idea. She moved further along, carvings and depictions of flame and ash dressed the walls. Paintings of vultures impaled by the horns of aurochs. Blood, ash, sacrifice, all haunting depictions which should have made her blood cold. Instead, she became more curious. The girl wandered deeper, until stumbling upon the golden idol of the martyr Agni. Agni's idol sat at the farthest end of the cave silver-wired armor adorning his body. He held a scimitar above his head, whilst his other hand lay on his chest, fingers lit aflame. He stood atop his altar wearing a crown of horns, mustached and narrow-nosed. Like staring at my father. An odd resemblance considering Agni's war crimes against the Ahura. The man who single-handedly destroyed a holy altar of peace for the sake of spite resembled the same people he spited. She gazed around, trying to find any other passageway, any crevice. Nothing. No sign of anyone having died. This statue marked the end of this temple. The girl understood now. Her mother abandoned her and her father. Father said she disappeared into this mountain, but she's not here. Her father lied to her. The girl scoffed, surprised at the disappointment she held for her father. Though brutish, the girl took solace in his honesty. Honesty is the closest thing to holiness we can attain, she remembered him saying. Liar. She now realized no demon lurked in this cave. No dark spirits. Simply idols of those long dead. The wind blew past her towards the idol, creating a whisper of sound, like wind passing through a tunnel. The girl moved closer. She grabbed the idol and moved her hand around Agni for any type of opening. Her hand stumbled upon his scimitar, which pulled downward like a latch. She jumped back. Gears clicked into place, pivoting the idol forward. The door opened, revealing... nothing. The empty crevice held no secrets or wonder. She creeped inside, but tripped over something. She pointed her torch towards the ground, revealing a mass of human bone. Skeletal remains... Tattered clothing stained in blood, and human skulls, all laid about like a field of white. The girl threw her cursed torch to the floor. 
Too horrified to comprehend the spiritual repercussions of handling a raw corpse like that, she made a mad dash out of the cave. Until a man appeared in front of her, like a dark spirit come to reap her soul. He grabbed her shoulders and knelt in front of her. The girl screamed. Stop, the figure said with a deep voice. The girl's screams outweighed his demands for silence, so he slapped her instead. Enough! The man's voice echoed throughout the mountain. He met the girl's gaze with his own. From the slap, the girl realized the man in front of her was her father. Father? the girl asked. What are you doing here? he replied. I... She lost her words. You lied to me. She changed the subject. You said Mother disappeared in the mountains, but I never found her. Didn't you? The girl's rebuttal caught in her throat. The corpses. Our people pray outside, her father continued. This is exactly how your mother died. Why did you not listen to me? Her father's eyes welled with water. He's afraid. His normally deep, dark eyes were now so gentle. He rubbed his balding head and tried to come up with words for her. The girl had never seen such terror in his eyes before. Only anger. Anger towards her. Anger towards the deva. Anger towards his wife. This new, softer side of him made her conflicted. The sun began to rise on the two. The distant sound of silver clinked, then stopped. In a second, an arrow met her father's throat. His eyes held one last gaze of surprise before blood gushed from his fat neck. He fell forward, crushing the girl underneath his weight. A soldier, in light, silver-wired armor, hung his bow onto his shoulder. He separated her and her father and dragged them both by the hair. She kicked and screamed against the rocks of the cave. Her already worn-out clothing tore against sharp rocks. Blood drew from her back, smearing against skin and cloth. The man dragged them all the way to the back of the cave, throwing them into the empty crevice where the skeletons lay dead. He closed the entrance. The girl tried to flee, screaming at the top of her lungs, but her voice did not leave the tomb. The torch was still lit aflame near the entrance. She scanned for any escape from this hell she found herself in. She only found corpses and dripping blood running down her back. The girl's eyes moved around the floor. The remains were so scattered only her father's body was discernible. Small bones belonging to children. Bones broken either by decay or force. And the remains of one hand, gripping a necklace. She crawled towards the hand and wrenched the necklace free. She brought it closer to the flame. A quartz medallion, identical to hers. Mother, the girl said. The girl was light-headed. Her breath strained, and the torch was petering out from the lack of air. Looking back at the quartz, the thought of Agni, the martyr who burned himself alive rather than dying by the hands of nature, came to mind. The girl shuddered at the thought. Unclean spirits haunted this place, festering in its walls and gems. All the other Ahura that must have died the same way. Wind blew against the outside of their tomb. The quartz glimmered in against the light of the flame. Is this what they want? The chance to purify this area, to cleanse this site of dread and evil. For the first time, the girl understood the spite of Agni the Martyr. The girl pulled her father's body next to her mother and placed herself on either side. The torch was still petering out near the entrance. She gripped the quartz so hard she bled. She stabbed the jewel into her throat and pulled the jagged rock, unleashing a crimson waterfall. Darkness crept into her vision while her head fell between her parents. The girl descended into sleep, held on either side by her family. Wow. I love Adrian's piece. I find it to be both gory and culturally informed and socially aware in a way that's really fascinating for what seems to be, you know, this ancient civilization and this fine line between human injustices and hauntings and the unknown. I hope you guys enjoyed the piece as much as I did.
Next up, I just want to talk to you about a piece that has stuck in my mind since the nearly two years ago when I saw it in the theater. I'm talking about M. Night Shyamalan's 2021 movie, Old. Obviously, the segment's going to include lots of spoilers, so please proceed with caution, but I wanted to talk about it in preparation for the fact that Shyamalan has a new piece coming out in February of 2023. We all know the things that he's known for. He is huge on his massive third-act twists that recontextualize the whole piece so far. However, I felt that Old was particularly interesting, and it was so close to being to being right, to being what it should be. It really hit the mark in some ways and severely missed the mark in other ways, and I just want to talk about it. The story follows a series of families who are all on vacation who get invited from their resort to an exclusive private beach. This beach, they get carted down all together and they start spending some time there, a normal beach day, when they realize that all of them have started to fall mysteriously ill or begin to suffer some strange side effects. Quickly, it dawns on them that they are aging rapidly. We end up discovering down the line that they are aging at one year per 30 minutes, which is really, really fast. They use some pseudoscience to explain why some parts of them age and some parts don't. You know, fingernails and hair are already dead, those cells don't respond, and a decent amount of it is suspension of disbelief to follow along. But it really taps into some fascinating cultural fears. The most obvious cultural fear that we're tapping into is clearly the fear of aging, the fear of how grotesque aging can be, and how you could fall ill at any time. The fear of illness is also woven in, given the fact that nearly everyone who's on this beach is suffering from some ailment, some serious ailment. We have someone who has MS. We have someone who has a severe calcium deficiency. We have an epileptic. We have someone with a serious tumor in their side, and so on and so forth. We're also tapping into the fear of lost time. As they're aging very quickly, we see children who are suddenly adults and the parents who cope with the loss of their babies in the years that they should have had. The children's, meanwhile, are coping with the loss of the lifetime that they were denied by immediately jumping into adulthood. The first moment that a set of parents look at their two young children and recognize that these teenagers are the 6- and 12-year-old that they had before, it's truly heartbreaking. Parts of this movie really do push me towards tears. It is powerful and moving. As different people begin to succumb to their illnesses and succumb to old age, our large group is whittled down to fewer and fewer individuals. All attempts to escape this beach have failed, as there seems to be some sort of a force that keeps them in. When people attempt to leave, they hear this immense pressure and buzzing, and they black out and end up back on the beach, thrown back or stumbled out. Finally, the two remaining characters, who started at ages 6 and 12, are middle-aged. They decode a note that they had received as children just that morning from another child at the resort that informs them to go towards the coral. They swim out. They swim out and disappear. Suddenly we cut to Shyamalan's cameo to the film to see that they've been watched this whole time. There are people monitoring them closely. We move into what is, of course, the big third act twist. What is going on here? What's the purpose? We move into this facility, this medical facility, and discover the fact that each of these people were sent to the island to be tested for big pharma. It's, it's a medical drama here. Each of them were given at their arrival at the resort a medicine to test whether it could save them. And rather than testing a new drug over the course of a lifetime, these people believe that they can test them in a single day. And that the lives lost along the way are just a part of the collateral damage on the way to save hundreds of thousands of lives with functional medicine. We do discover that the medicine given to the epileptic woman saved her from having a seizure for 16 years, and therefore they had a success out of this experiment, and will continue on with their testing the next day with new individuals. Of course, we couldn't just leave the secret of the island out there, so the pair of siblings who swam out and disappeared miraculously did escape the coral, and they make their way back to the resort. They find a police officer who the man, who was once a young boy that very morning, 
had asked about his career, and he hands him a list of the missing names, the individuals who had died on the island, noted by someone else who had fallen the same fate as their families. He tells everyone about what's been going on down there, and the implication at the end is that the hammer of justice falls down on this pharmaceutical company, and everything is resolved. Now, the concept for the film is based on the 2013 graphic novel Sandcastle, and I have to be honest, I found it to be an incredibly fascinating concept. It's unlike most forms of horror that I've seen. It's exploring body horror in a unique way, and it's just really, really cool. However, I felt that for the fact that he was attempting to make this social commentary, he failed in his social awareness in so many ways, and although that's not new for Shyamalan, it was pretty disappointing because this movie felt so close to being something so great. First, the male gaze in this movie made me very uncomfortable. When we're first on the beach, there are three children. There are two who are pretty young, a young girl who I would say is about five or so, there's a six-year-old boy, and there's a twelve-year-old girl. As they're bodies start aging at this rapid rate, their bodies also start developing at this rapid rate. The first that we notice, most obviously, is the older daughter who becomes an adult very quickly out of a very childlike body, and her mother arranges for her to put on a swimsuit that she already had, an extra swimsuit. So she comes out, she's in a grown woman's swimsuit and a grown woman's throw shirt, which is perfect. That is very appropriate. Then we also have the young boy who his shorts start feeling kind of snug. We never address how he comes across a second pair of swim trunks, but he does change swim trunks. And honestly, I don't need to contextualize how it happened. I don't want to see a child body bursting out of their child clothes, but it got managed. It, it was completely managed. This third young girl, though, made me so uncomfortable, and there are logical, textual ways that they could have handled it. First, I find it important to note that she is also the one who gets aligned in a very sexual way. She and the young boy, as they reach that kind of pubescent age, they do have sex. They don't know what it means, they don't know what's going to happen, but given how rapidly everything's happening, she is then pregnant, immediately, hugely pregnant. So we've already aligned her with this sexuality. And mind you, she does still have the mind of a child. She's realizing some things and their brains are catching up pretty quickly, but they still have only experienced what they have as children, and this is all happening very rapidly. Now, for that situation to happen, it's uncomfortable, but I think it's still horrific and within the world that we're working in. But they just leave her in her same little girl swim bottom and a tank top, which then as she's in not only a quickly maturing body, but also a pregnant body, she is bursting out of this tank top. This isn't a commentary on the actress's body. She is a normal grown actress who's playing this role. This is about the fact that they took this sexually aligned character and didn't change her into adult clothing. Now you might ask, hey, did they not have clothing for her on this beach? First of all, they never contextualized how the young boy got a new pair of shorts, but he got them just fine. But second of all, the same mother who assured that she took care of her child and got her changed into a new swimsuit is wearing a second shirt. She has a shirt over her swim top, and she could have very easily given her shirt to that girl. And based off the kinds of mama bear behavior that we've seen from that character, it would have made a lot of sense for her to give her shirt to this young girl so that she can contain her body in an appropriate way. So, the combination of both the male gaze and, honestly, some things that seem to be all too appealing to a pedophile audience made me very uncomfortable with how they handled that character. The sex scene itself is handled very maturely, but that one character is singled out in this painfully sexualized way. The male gaze manifests itself in more than one character. The mother of that same girl I was just talking about is a young, beautiful woman who is married to an older-than-her wealthy doctor. The implication is that she's in it for the money, and she is written to be so shallow, so silly, so flighty, right? Which, again, I understand. I'm a huge slasher fan myself. I live for a good trope. However, most of the other characters aren't leaning so heavily into such a trope, but she remains a trope for most of the movie. 
as she goes on with this severe calcium deficiency, her body is beginning to fail her in certain ways, and she doesn't want to be seen, which then seems to manifest itself in this image-obsessed monster that she's beginning to literally form hunches and mangle in front of us, screaming about, don't look at me, don't look at me, right? Now, you could just blame that on, oh, that's the whole character arc. What really killed me about this character is the fact that they gave her a chance to be understood. For just a couple minutes, she's sitting and reflecting on her life. And she reflects on a love that she once had of a boy who had nothing to offer her, and she left him to, to pursue someone who had something to offer and ended up in a relationship with this wealthy man. She ponders what could have been. So, for a few moments, we begin to see her as a human, and not just someone who is obsessed with her image and obsessed with money. We begin to understand her as a real character, and so you think that that's going to carry on. But then her character's big final arc is that her calcium deficiency has gone so bad that she is falling apart physically. And the two siblings, who are now growing to be more and more adult-like, are hiding in a cave. They come upon her, and she begins to panic about being perceived, panic about being seen, panic about the fact that they light matches to see her face, and she rolls and rolls and throws things and injures herself so badly that she becomes a mangled knot of flesh, and that is how she dies. So not only did they take this other woman in this family and create her to be this shallow, image-obsessed monster, but they showed us for a moment that they had the opportunity to humanize her and make her as real as everyone else on this island, and they gave up that opportunity. They didn't want it, they wanted to have the image-obsessed monster at the end. Which is fine, I guess, but not very kind to women. The other big issue that I think that they handled not so well with this movie is mental illness, which isn't unusual for Shyamalan. You know, we've seen the monstrosity with which he approaches schizophrenia in Split already, but apparently the man just can't get enough of it. While the beach is the enemy to everyone, there is a more immediate threat with them right there. One theme that's starting from very early on is that he is uncomfortable with the black man on the beach, he's behaving in a racist way, as soon as they find a body, he assumes that the black man had something to do with it, and this continues on in a dramatic way until he kills this man, and he starts telling everyone that he was convinced that he was going to steal money from his house. Which already we've taken and created a very broad sweep of, oh, we know this is the bad guy because racism is bad. Racism is very bad, but it's not a very nuanced bad guy. We have this very flat character who's playing among some very three-dimensional characters handling some more complicated social plots. However, then they take that and they roll it into this exhibited behavior where he starts having these illusions, these, these disillusions. At one point while he's doing a surgery that is of an, a very immediate priority, we have a character who will die if the surgery is not completed and completed very quickly. He starts getting stuck on, what was that movie that had Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson in it? And this keeps coming up in moments of high tension. He's asking about this movie when everyone else is dealing with these serious issues. So... Between these regressive social thoughts and this wandering idea as he's aging, you begin to wonder, oh, does he have, like, early-onset dementia? Is he, like, really struggling with regressive behavior? Nope. No, it's not that. So as he continues on, they excommunicate him from their group unofficially, and then once we have just the core family, the two parents of the two children who are siblings, at the end, he comes up and he tries to kill one of them. It's a whole thing, but he is truly seen as an enemy. So then you're like, oh, so he's this racist enemy who's having these weird regressive memories and this lack of context. What is this? And then at the very end, of course, Shyamalan, when we are in that medical facility, it is revealed that he had schizophrenia this whole time. And they said, oh, I really feel like we should keep the mental illness patients away from the strictly medical patients when we're testing. What a terrible regressive thing to say. So not only is the only true enemy on the beach, 
which could bring out social darkness in anyone under these circumstances, a schizophrenic man. But it is implied that A, his racism can be blamed on schizophrenia, which I'm not schizophrenic, but boy, would that be upsetting. And that schizophrenia manifests itself in these ways that, frankly, don't look like schizophrenia. I don't claim to be someone who specializes in the studies of schizophrenia in film. I don't know a ton about it. However, this portrayal just didn't sit right with me, it didn't quite add up, and it again really leaned into the idea that schizophrenia and mental illness is monstrous, which is the same thing that he does in Split, and it's really getting old. Pun intended. So, I feel that old is a phenomenal thriller concept, but then it's watered down by a dated and misaligned attempt at social commentary. If it didn't try to make social commentary, then maybe we could write these off as weird bad tropes. First, even that might not be the case, but this is clearly a social commentary film. It's about aging, it's about these cultural fears, and it's about big pharma and the relationship between our dependence on medicine and how that has power over us. That is a massive social commentary. And so to fail women and to fail mental illness so badly just really frustrated me with this. I've been needing to talk about it since I saw the film. I first saw it with my good friend Kyle David Perry. You might remember that they wrote for the last episode, and after we saw it, we debriefed about this film for over an hour, just going on and on, because it is so close to being so good. The concept is terrifying and fascinating all at once, but the execution is, frankly, offensive. I will go see what Shyamalan puts out next in February of 2023. I am a sucker for the third act twists. I love trying to explore that and figure out where he's going with it, but I hope to eventually see some improvement on not only these repeat offenses, but his overall marrying of social commentary and what he's actually putting on the screen. Up next, I'll be reading the poem Heart of Horrors by Alshad Kara. Heart of Horrors I had a nightmarish nightmare when the sun decided to sleep at sunset. In that nightfall, I was thrown off a waterfall, falling to a thousand falls. But I didn't fall in an ocean of darkness, but on a chained dinner table where the unrequited lovers would feast on my heart to soothe the unrequited heartbreak I caused. I was so close to a heartache. But the sun decided to wake up at sunrise, lighting my life again to a new dawn of lights. Thank you, Alshad, for sending that in, and it is a great reminder to all of us that if you have any more poetry or shorter pieces, those are just as welcome on this podcast. Please send them in if you're interested in horror and if your piece is about horror. Up next, Kimberly's Roundup. Let me tell you a thing or two about the thing or two I have seen and read in the past month. First, The Woman in Cabin 10 by Ruth Ware. This book is fun. It's very Agatha Christie, which, honestly, I'm so silly for not assuming it would be. All of the reviews for a bunch of her other work have pointed to the fact that she is a phenomenal modern Agatha Christie in her work. It's really well done. Sometimes I get sick of the knockoff Agatha Christie's because few people can do it as well as Agatha does, but Ruth Ware really does a phenomenal job with it. And more so, as someone who loves thriller and tension beyond the whodunit, the story continues after the quote-unquote culprit is found. We don't have to stop there, and we get to stay with our character as some of the repercussions are revealed, which is oftentimes something that we are denied in a Christie novel. All around, a great read. Deadstream 2022, the latest Shudder original. 
This is a piece that follows an obnoxious YouTuber as he does his greatest challenge yet and stays overnight in a haunted house. It is found footage as he is live streaming the whole thing, and it is a very fun reflection of current YouTube culture and Twitch culture, and it does a great job of capturing what those comments and responses from audiences actually look like, because I feel like those are often failed in movies to show what texting and commenting and social media actually look like in action right now. So that's really fun. The main character is very dislikable in a very funny way. The only thing that fell a little bit short for me is that it was well set up for some genuine scares, but once the scares start rolling in, they really make it so silly as opposed to having a very silly character counteract some genuine scares for a more balanced movie. Nevertheless, it's a really fun watch, and I highly recommend it. Foe by Ian Reed. This book I read because I was so obsessed with I'm Thinking of Ending Things. I talked about it in the last episode. That book shook my life. Foe isn't quite as good, but it's still a very good read. Foe follows a couple who's told that one of them is going to be replaced while the other is sent on an ultra-secret mission. A great mystery unravels as their life changes around this news and the way that they interact with one another develops. Something just doesn't add up. I would say, unlike I'm Thinking of Ending Things, his big twist at the end is far more predictable in this one, and I knew it ahead of time. But similarly to how I felt about The Woman in Cabin 10, in this one, at the end, we still get to play out what happens after, as opposed to just leading up to the big, ta-da! And so, even though I was able to guess it, I still really enjoyed this read. I just wouldn't prioritize it as much as his first work. Thanksgiving 2007. You bet I was in a November kind of mood, and I put on this movie for the first time I've ever seen it. This is incredible. It's terrible. It's terrible and offensive and not good in a lot of ways. But if you're the kind of person who loves bad puppetry, and really great one-liners, and just chaos, Thanks Killing is going to deliver for you. And I am just obsessed. It's going to be in my regular Thanksgiving rotation. I highly recommend it if you haven't watched it before. I watched it on Tubi because I don't pay for anything. Stephen King, Pet Cemetery. Okay, listen. When I decided that I was going to be better about reading books, which I did earlier this year, I immediately knew I wanted to read some of the best horror, and I haven't read a lot of horror before I started picking these up. And so I started looking and saying, what's the scariest out there? And everyone said, you gotta read Pet Cemetery." First of all, I feel like we are beyond haunted native burial ground as a plot point. I feel like we're beyond it, and I know that this book is a little bit older, but to a modern eye, it just ugh, sits the wrong way. But moreover, I just didn't find it very scary. I understand that the story is meant to be very prophetic, as what happens, you, you kind of know where it's going, they tell you where it's going, and the story is pretty well known. However, that prophetic nature really lifts the tension. So rather than wondering what's going to happen next and being dragged along in the story, you're more reading it casually and just letting it happen which is just not as much of my taste. I can understand why other people would be into it, but I've decided that this is just not the author for me. Leprechaun 1993. I watched this movie for the first time. Apparently, I was just in a mood for little guys reigning terror this last month. I've heard that Jennifer Aniston is very embarrassed that she ever worked on this and is ashamed of it, and I think she shouldn't be. Not only did I find it fun, and the characters are crazy, but I found that the oddball ensemble of painter guys who were going along with this mystery were surprisingly heartfelt and really fun to interact with. It was better than I expected. I loved every minute of it, and I think that Jennifer Aniston should own this as a part of her acting history. That's it for this month. I am looking forward to watching some more things and reading some more books and getting back to you with some more thoughts next month. Uh, if you have any recommendations, especially if you have any Christmas horror recommendations, please send them my way. You could reach out to Morbid Medley on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, literally anywhere you can find us. Bother me and tell me what to watch or read because I am there. Oh boy, guys, I am so excited for our special podcast feature this month. I reached out to Jeff Walker on a whim because I really love his podcast and I thought it would be a great fit for what we're doing here. 
And he responded and he said yes. So thank you, Jeff, for letting us use a clip of your podcast. You guys should go check it out. What this is going to be is the first part of a three-part story. So if you hear this and you want to know what happens next, head over to his page called Acephaly, A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. There's been some debate over how it's pronounced, but no matter what, that will get you there. And start listening. His stories are so good. His storytelling is so simple and yet so compelling. And he's delivering top-notch content every time he posts. This particular story is called The Infernal Enigma. So if you find yourself wanting to know how it ends, head over to his page, find The Infernal Enigma wherever you like to listen, and finish it out. Without further ado, here it is. The Infernal Enigma What man of us has never felt, walking through a twilight or writing down a date from his past, that he has lost something infinite? Jorge Luis Borges, Dream Tigers. Part 1 Nothing has ever given me any reason to cast doubt upon my memories. Memory has, for me, always existed as a constant. The ones I've accumulated remain unchanged, and, although some are more vague than others, I can recall most of them with relative lucidity. I remember being in the backyard of my childhood home when one of my sisters approached me and told me that our parents were getting a divorce. I was only three years old at the time, and looking back I'm surprised I even knew what that word meant. I remember making little boats out of pieces of scrap wood, and floating them down the creek that ran behind our house. I remember traveling to Germany with my mom to meet my grandparents, and I remember that the kids there would call me Meckyhead because they thought my haircut resembled that of a hedgehog plush toy that was popular in their country. I remember learning to ride my first bike, a chrome GT Interceptor. And of course, I remember when the murder happened. It was the summer of 1997, and I was eight years old. My father was largely out of the picture at that point, reaching out to me and my sisters only on Christmas and what few birthdays he managed to remember. My mother, my two sisters, and I were living in Whitehall, Montana, a town that, for as long as I can remember, has struggled to maintain a population of over a thousand people. We lived in a little gray house that stood in the shadow of the Tobacco Root Mountains, and I'd spent most of that summer building bike jumps in the field behind our house and wrestling the N64 controller out of my sister's hands. As the middle sibling, I was condemned to share a room with my younger sister, Emma, while my older sister, Olivia, got a room of her own. There were few things I wanted to do less than lay in a bunk bed below my snot-nosed little sister. And so I would spend as little time as possible in my bedroom, often laying on the couch in the living room until late into the night. I would watch reruns of The Simpsons and The X-Files, my nights punctuated by commercial breaks as one hot summer day faded into the next. My mom would periodically threaten to enforce curfews if I didn't start going to bed at a reasonable hour, the sternness of her German heritage showing through when she gave me the look and said it was time for bed. But I think she knew the divorce had hit me pretty hard, and perhaps she even felt guilty about that. Either way, she'd taken to a more hands-off parenting approach, seeming to hope that if she let me do whatever I want, it would abate the quiet melancholy she'd seen in me since my father left. It was a muggy night in early August, and I was watching my way through another rerun marathon, when the signal started to warp, and the screen filled with static. I changed the channel, searching for a better signal, 
but only found the nightly news. I was about to change it to something else when an image on the screen stopped me. On the TV, the news anchor was saying that the police were asking for the public's help in identifying someone that may have been involved in a crime. They said that the person they were looking for was a young boy, a boy whose police sketch they were displaying on the TV. It was a face that looked jarringly like my own. I knew I hadn't committed any crime, and that they must just be looking for a boy that happened to look like me. But it still got under my skin, seeing that uncanny sketch on the TV. The news anchor went on to explain that the crime had occurred south of Piedmont, but said that, out of respect for the families of those involved, they couldn't provide any further details on the nature of the crime. I turned off the TV and sat there in the dark, wondering what the boy that looked like me had done. The following morning, the story was already becoming a local sensation. When Olivia caught wind of it, she seized on the opportunity and began lampooning me. You're busted, she balked. Hey, Mom, Rip's on America's Most Wanted. Rip was, of course, not my given name, but a nickname based on my initials. Richard Ingmar Peterson. R.I.P. The joking continued for a few days. Soon, Olivia started saying that she was going to wait until the reward money reached a sizable sum before turning me in to the authorities. Every time I refused to give her the TV remote, she threatened to call the tip line. I certainly didn't enjoy being tormented, but I was actually kind of grateful that it hadn't happened during the school year. My sister could be obnoxious, but she was nothing compared to the older kids at school. It was later that week when my mom stormed into the kitchen and demanded that Olivia stop ridiculing me. She sat us down at the kitchen table and told us that she'd heard from a coworker what had happened and that it was very serious. A young girl had been killed, she told us. She had been drowned in the Jefferson River, held under the cold water by an unidentified young boy. A girl is dead, she said. Do you understand? She looked at us, repeating the question over and over as if something in this horrific news was supposed to make sense to us. That is why, she said. A little girl is dead. It's not a joke when someone is dead. My sister and I just sat there in horrified shock. It was a tragedy more brutal than anything we could have ever imagined. And it had occurred just miles from our house. The girl, whose name we would later learn was Melanie Hammond, had been killed just weeks shy of her fourth birthday. The official story was that on the morning of August 5th, Melanie had been in the backyard of her house, looking for her cat, when she had apparently wandered off. At 10.15 a.m., a farmer in a nearby field said he saw a young boy emerge from a grove of trees and approach a young girl. The man watched for a few short minutes and said that when he lost sight of the children, they were walking hand in hand in the direction of the Jefferson River. At 10.22 a.m., a motorist driving over the Kellam Road Bridge reported seeing the children as they waded waist-deep into the murky water. They said that the taller child seemed to be guiding the smaller one as they walked deeper and deeper into the quickly moving current. And while it was an odd scene to behold, they claimed that neither of the children appeared to be in any sort of distress. Forty minutes later, though, Melanie's body would be found a half mile down the river. Her lungs were filled with water, and the coroner would later find bruises that indicated she'd been held underwater. Bruises that were consistent with those made by the hands of a child. There were 106 boys below the age of 10 living in Whitehall, and in the weeks that followed, all of them were questioned, myself included. And though I couldn't recall exactly what I'd been doing at 10 a.m. on the morning of August 5th, 
I had apparently provided enough information for them to be satisfied that I was innocent. Unlike some of the other kids that they seemed more suspicious of, I never got called back for a second or third round of questioning. And later that fall, as our town descended into a media circus, my mom was offered a job at a hospital in Spokane, Washington, and, seeing it as a golden opportunity, decided to move the family west. But even after I left Montana, Melanie's death left a lasting impression on me. I'd never met her in her short life, but the shock and horror I felt at her killing didn't soon leave me. Even at my young age, I knew people were capable of horrible, vile things. But something about Melanie's death felt so personal. Part 2 Ah! Oh! That is one of my favorite episodes of his, and I assure you that you don't know where it's going. It is really full of lots of interesting twists and turns, and you should at the very least go and finish it out on his pages. Please go check it out. We're coming to a wrap here, so thank you all of you for listening and sticking with me here. Don't forget to post about Morbid Medley or follow us on our socials, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook. We're everywhere. We're just at Morbid Medley everywhere you can find us. We're looking to interact with you. The best way for us to grow is by word of mouth, so tell your friends and just let people know what you're listening to. If you think that you could do this better, cool. You should send us your pieces. You can send any pieces our way at any time. We're looking for academic analysis, genre analysis, movie reviews, book reviews, short horror fiction, short horror poetry, urban legends, ghost stories. Anything that's horror related that's not true crime is definitely up our alley. So please, you can send any pieces to morbidmedley at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening to this month's Plate of the Bite Size Bazaar, and I hope to catch you next time. Bye.